Welcome back to Matinees on Main Street, the podcast about the history of the movies from the beginning. My name is Alan. Recently, we've talked about the appearance of film exchanges, Nickelodeons, and even a novelty ride that used scenic footage shot from trains in order to simulate rides through distant places. All of this suggests a real increase in interest towards the movies as a way to make money. That's because the movies themselves were growing as a public entertainment. The increase in the number of times that moving pictures or motion pictures were mentioned in the press is one way to spot this growth. This, along with the rise in businesses that used movies as an entertainment tool or to support the industry in some way, does suggest that the number of people attending movies was also increasing. At the time, the movies were just part of a growing interest in public entertainments aimed at the middle and lower classes. The rise of amusement parks was also part of that market. So was the sudden appearance of bowling alleys, skating rinks, and dance halls. This period of time that lies between the end of the 1890s Depression and the beginning of World War I is referred to by a number of names, including the Progressive Era and the Age of Ragtime. But it could just as easily be referred to as the Era of Electrical Entertainment. It was the Progressive Era, as it did consider the consequences of the actions of business over the previous 50 years. As for ragtime, it was definitely a period when black culture had an influence upon white culture, at least when it concerned music. But not all music of the period ragged. Instead, much of what was exciting at this time was due to electricity, from the rides of the amusement parks to the illumination used for late-night entertainments. Electricity ran movie projectors, tilt-a-whirls, streetcars, electric signs, and many other newly devised gadgets that were part of this electrified, highly amused world. Because electricity could provide it, people were devising ways to thrill the public, and this need for thrills was changing the way we saw movies. While newsreels continued, as would educational films and travelogues, thrills were defining which movies were the most important whether it was a trip to the moon or experiencing a train robbery. Crime films became popular not just because they provided a moral lesson, but because they thrilled the public. But more than anything, the thrills took the movies beyond the desire to see images move, and for these moving images, they had to move beyond traditional reality and create a world of thrills. The problem was creating thrills cost money, and with the arrival of film exchanges and rental establishments, the money to be made from making those kind of movies would start to become more difficult to collect. There was quite a lot of money to be made by the person who could read into the public's desires, and you'd think that some of the pioneering film companies would at least attempt to do that. In a way, that's what Georges Méliès had been doing for a few years and his complex fantasies still amused the public. But the great train robbery provided thrills that no one had expected, so it would seem that film companies would continue to seek those kind of thrills. Well, they kind of did. But their efforts were really quite half-hearted. To be fair, in the months immediately after the release of that movie, Edison's company primarily promoted that blockbuster film. The company was, by far, the most productive of the early filmmakers, and there were weeks when several films were being released. But throughout 1904, the most prominent films the company released were comedies, such as the bundled package of films about Buster Brown and his dog Tig, and Edison's company knockoff of Biograph's Personal known by the ridiculously long title of How a Frenchman Got a Wife Through the New York Herald Personal Columns. 
Edison already had serious money coming in from his inventions, the patents, the manufacturing of the machines, and with the economic crisis of the 1890s now in the past, even his investors had returned. He did spend some money in building a studio in Manhattan that sat on the rooftop of a multi-story building, and he did hire some important help, especially Edwin Porter, who made both The Life of an American Fireman and The Great Train Robbery. These films sold a lot of copies and made a lot of money, and yet the Edison Company continued to be contradictory in its approach to making films. What seemed to be the trouble is the continued perception of the movies by all these movie machine-making gentlemen. A fair amount of writing has been done about how the movies were different from other forms of entertainment or from other art forms. And at this time, this difference was not yet recognized. Art was perceived as an object, a painting, a sculpture, a photograph, a book, a musical record. You bought it, you held it, you purchased it from the creator, and it physically resided in your home or your collection. Of course, books and music were somewhat different, but they were still singular. Their creation belonged to the composer or writer. At the beginning, the movies were not seen that way. They were considered manufactured products, just like the moving picture cameras that made them and the projectors that showed them. They were even made by the same people as the machines, and that may have been part of the problem. This point of view represented the mechanical mentality of the inventors, as well as the public in general. Photography in the early days had been seen the same way, and only with the rise of a more personal form of photography, as well as with newspapers and magazines starting to introduce them into their publications, was it then considered something different maybe something more artistic. The movies had not yet reached that level of personal expression, and it was not going to with most of the men who were making them at that time. To them, even in 1905, movies were about machines, and the movies were simply adornments to those machines. But what they failed to see was that in order to continue to sell those machines, they needed to continually make movies. Without those movies, those machines were useless. Had Edison considered marketing a movie camera, things might have been a little different. But he didn't. So that meant that every person who owned a projector was dependent upon the manufacturer to continually provide him or her with films, even if they had to be purchased. And by 1905, the movies were starting to become more important than the machines. The growth of the exchanges, the appearance of the first Nickelodeons, and the sudden fascination with phantom train rides all reflect that view. But if someone didn't wake these men up to the changing cinematic world around them, it was going to pass them all up, because someone would eventually come along and take advantage of this situation. And in 1905, he was attempting to do so. That man was Charles Pathé. I've talked about Pathé Frere several episodes ago, about how the company was started by Charles Pathé and his brothers. What Charles seems to have been doing was putting his focus on movies. Maybe. This story is not clear, but before I attempt to figure it out, another question keeps bothering me. Why was he the only one to do this? You would think that after Milliez's lead, others would have followed. And yes, Edwin Porter did draw inspiration from Milliez and many others, but after the first few moments of genius, he too slipped back into the viewpoint of the men he worked with. Another group who would soon attempt to do this would be Albert Smith and James Blackton, who were running the Vitagraph Company. But they were more interested in creativity than they were exploiters of the movies for their own sake. In a way, this reminds me of what the computer industry went through in the 1990s. There were plenty of people fixated on the machines, and many of them did well. But it was the few who stepped beyond the obvious that became the true visionaries. They placed software or systems above the machines themselves, 
and that seemed to be the same thing with the early movies. Now that the public was getting a small taste of more complex movies, they'd like to have more, and at first only one person was willing to take the chance in that direction, and being first helped him take the lead. What the others could see was that the commercialization process had changed. What they couldn't see was how to get around it. As long as the films were short, the cost of making the films could be covered by the selling of the movies outright. But a longer movie required more film, more people, a bigger story, bigger sets, more time to film it. It would also require the purchasing of more film to make into film positives that the projectionists showed. All of this made the cost per film escalate. As these men possibly saw, this situation was going to be less than completely favorable to the men making the machines. The higher cost of these newer, longer and more complex films would make it hard for the movie companies to sell their longer films. Their only chance for success was when and if the movie theaters and exchanges grew exponentially. But rather than attempting to deal with the future, they live for today, and as the studios do now, they simply stole each other's ideas and waited for the next blockbuster to hopefully pull them out of their current financial ruts. To a degree, what Charles Pathé did that no one else seemed to do was think ahead just far enough ahead to understand that there was just as much profit in making movies as there was in making machines. He also understood the need for controlling costs in the making of movies, a job that wasn't as hard back then. Still, I really don't think he cared that much about making the movies, at least not as a form of expression or as an art form. Film historian Alan Williams put it succinctly when he said that what Charles Pathé wanted to do more than anything else was just to make a lot of money. Period. Actually, that doesn't sound much different from anyone else in the business at this time, although, to be fair, most of them wanted to do it on their own terms. Those terms mostly involved making money from selling the machines that this or that person invented. In Charles Pathé's case, those terms were probably not even that well-defined. He simply wanted to make money, a lot of money, and how he did it was of little matter. And while he had some interest in the mechanics of the moving picture machines, it never clouded his vision for making money any way he could. But when he found that way, he would stick with it. Charles was a salesman from the beginning. At first, he sold interesting phonograph plays after he and his brother got a hold of a phonograph. His job was to encourage people at local fairs to spend centimes to listen to songs being played on the phonograph. France had a long history of regional, provincial, and local fairs. This was the vast rural network that spread the news of movies throughout France in the late 1890s and early 1900s. And it was during this time, and among these fairs, that Charles discovered the moving pictures and set out to exploit them as he had his phonograph. In ways, Charles Pathé reminds me more of William Selig in Chicago than he does any other film man of this time. England had quite a circuit of festivals and fairs that ran into Wales and up into Scotland. And yet none of the men who were involved in the development of the movie machines and processes in England really understood this vast market, at least not in the way that Charles Pathé did. And the same goes for America. Most of those men were New York City bound, and only William Selig had spent time out west traveling through vaudeville, selling his performances as well as any other carny or festival ideas he may have come across. He, too, discovered the movies at a fair, this time in Texas, and when he returned to Chicago, he had a projector of his own built. Like Pathé and his record player, he took his machine on the road before establishing a base back in Chicago. As the only other business visionary, it was Selig who would officially start the move of America's film industry to California. 
But in 1897, Seelig was not in as good a position as was Charles Pathé. Pathé was older. He had turned 30 in 1893, the year before Edison started to market his kinetoscope. It was around this time that he discovered the phonograph, and after some time spent in the fairs, he convinced his brothers to pool their money and start selling phonographs and records out of a small shop in a Parisian suburb of Vincennes. Not long after that, he discovered film shorts and convinced his brothers to expand their business to include the movies, meaning projectors and film. Charles Pathé thought bigger than the other movie men and also bigger than his brothers. It's pretty well known in the Pathé story that the movie division struggled for a number of years as it got its roots established. It's easy to see what Charles was doing when you look back in hindsight. He incorporated the company, contracted to have a viable projector made, started making movies, hired employees, and started expanding the physical presence of the company. Interestingly, most of this started before Pathé had any real cinematic success. Depending upon whose story you hear, the man who put this all together was either Charles Pathé himself or Claude Grivelas. Grivela came from southern France, in Avignon. His family was either in the silk manufacturing business or was attempting to get into it. Either way, the family's wealth was ruined when a silkworm disease hit France. Claude was pulled out of his boarding school and placed into employment at the age of 13. Either through his employer or by his own efforts, Claude took evening classes and worked both for a photographer and in the silk trade. Further studies in electricity led him to befriend the watchmaker Louis Breguet, who managed to get the job of installing Alexander Graham Bell's telephones at the 1878 Exposition Universelle in Paris. Grivela installed the phones for Breguet. In 1889, Grivelas did the electrical work for that year's Exposition Universelle and also became friends with Gustave Eiffel, or Eiffel. Eiffel was an investor in visionary ideas, and along with Grivela, both men became interested in the growing cinema movement of the late 1890s. So, how important is that story? I don't know. Film historian Richard Abel, who has done a lot of research into the history of French cinema, barely mentions Grivela. Due to the amount of work that Abel has done on the subject, I tend to agree with his view that this drive to make money from the movies was Charles' doing. It makes the most sense, considering his desire to be financially successful. Still, the Grivelas story suggests that it was the man from Avignon who put together the investment group that supported Pathé. In Paris. It was Grivela and Constance Sousa who made Pathé's second and much more successful projector. This would be the projector that would make Pathé's movie business successful, and that by 1900 Pathé Frère was Constance Sousa's most successful client. Grivela was interested in investing in Pathé's company, and it may have been he who brought in the French banking firm of Crédit Lyonnais. Between them, Pathé became a joint stock company. In this corporate investment structure, Emile Pathé continued to run the phonograph division, which was doing spectacularly well, while Charles would continue to grow the movie division. It should be mentioned that while Pathé was becoming Contensus's biggest client, this was much more due to the sales of phonographs than it was to, say, movie projectors. It does suggest that everyone understood that it would take time for the seeds of Pathé's movie business idea to come to fruition. In between incorporation and Pathé's first steps to world cinema domination, Charles spent much time perfecting the camera, the projector, and eventually the film they would use. In America, everyone was using Kodak, and even in England that was the case but Kodak was expensive and sometimes a little hard to get. 
so most of the French companies experimented with making their own film. Due to the company's patience, Pathé would prove to have made the most successful movie film in France. From Charles Pathé's point of view, the company was ready to market themselves globally in 1901 in the way that the Lumières attempted to do so with the cinematograph just a few years earlier. Pathé's plan had started with a series of physical expansions, as Pathé had a number of buildings erected, one by one, in the Vincennes neighborhood. The first that went up was a film studio, a large glass building where actors could be filmed. This was in 1902. Like the Edisons and the Mutoscopers, more effort probably would have been made towards building studios if the market had demanded it. But as the public had been entertained by newsreels, actualities, and simple comedies up to this point, there seemed to be no reason for building them any faster than they had to. In fact, there was probably no hurry for Pathé to build one now, except for Charles' desire for success. I guess that wondering why Pathé needed to build a studio in 1902 would be a good question to ask. Up to this time, no one had truly needed one. Biograph had a rooftop studio since 1896, but they rarely used it. Edison built his five years later, but the era of the melodrama was not here yet. Probably the most important glass studio films made in the first years of the new century were the Méliès films, so it's possible in that sense maybe Pathé saw himself competing with Méliès, or at least joining him. Over the next few years, Pathé Frère's first important films would be based on children's stories. With these successes, Pathé would add other large buildings within the various suburban neighborhoods of Paris, including another glass studio for filming, a large building for making Pathé film, a place to develop and edit film, and even a building for color tinting the films. And just as America would eventually start building studios in warmer climates, Pathé would do the same thing. By 1910, if not earlier, Pathé was definitely the largest movie company in the world. All of this started to come together in about 1902, and it's around this time that a realignment of the corporate board took place. Charles Pathé had said that previous to this time, he had started to feel like simply an employee in his own company, as he had to answer to the board. But in 1902, Charles Pathé was finally brought on to his own board. Two of his other brothers sat on it, although they had no voting power. Now, Charles was one of the elite in his own company. I should also mention that this was about the time that Griveloth was ousted from the board, or at least squeezed into the minority. This makes me wonder what kind of arrangement that Charles had to make to get financing for his company and yet leave him out of the board of directors. Did he make these agreements as the only way to expand Pathé Frère? How much did the board agree with his vision prior to his being elected onto the board? And how much of this was Griveleth doing? Was he ousted due to Pathé? Is it true that Griefelat's vision of the company had become less commercial and more cinematically visionary? Was he simply the odd man out in a growing commercial concern? I don't know the answers to any of these questions. But what is true is that in 1902, Path A started to export bigger and more important films than they had previously made. If you've been listening to this podcast, then you know that not a lot was happening in the movies around 1902. War films still floated around the cinematic universe, and a lot of silly comedies and actualities could still be found. It wasn't so much the growth of the movies themselves as it was the slow growth of the exhibition side of the market. While the film companies were still in no hurry to provide movies, there were people who were willing to make good money making sure that prints were available 
of the latest films, regardless of how limited they were in scope. Pathé barely shows up on America's radar, but a few of these films do get mentioned in a few newspapers, although it's hard to tell if these are originals or dupes. One film in particular was Ali Baba and His Forty Thieves, which has quite a Méliès look to it. Of course, the film had not been produced by Charles Pathé, but by the man he hired to make movies, Ferdinand Zecca. Zecca was a Parisian who had been hovering around the film companies for some time. He was born into a theatrical family with his father managing a theater and his brothers acting on stage. For a time, Zecca both managed and performed, and by his late 20s, he was also doing voiceover work for Pathé Records. Through the rest of the 1890s, he also found work at both Pathé and Gaumont, either acting or writing or whatever else needed to be done. He helped build the Pathé Pavilion at Paris's 1900 Exposition Universelle, and afterwards Charles Pathé hired him to do jobs for the company, including acting, writing, and even directing. It seems that at first, Pathé was hiring Zecca to do some of the same things that Alice Guy was starting to do for Gaumont. After all, in 1900, Pathé was still behind Gaumont in what it intended to achieve. Like everyone else who started making movies at this point, Zecca started out by copying and being influenced by others. And with this three-way exchange of ideas between the French, the British, and the Americans, everyone started to learn the basics of camera work, editing, film tricks, and storytelling. In the beginning, Zecca, and possibly Pathé, were influenced by Méliès, and it's possible that Alice Guy's work figured in there somewhere also. She is harder to predict as the timetable of her work is so unreliable. But when you look at Zecca's first years of film, you can see not only the big influence of Méliès, but also the influence of Edison and the British. He copies some of the simpler camera tricks and themes of Méliès. There's a knockoff of Edison's keyhole films, which even had an Edison-type ending with the keyhole peeping Tom being kicked down the stairs. And there are some copies of Williamson's ideas, like The Big Swallow or Grandma's Reading Glasses, which was also inspired by Edison. Even his Dance of the Sylves seems inspired by Alice Guy's dance films from this period. This was the same training that people like Alice Guy and Billy Bitzer were doing at the same time. In an indirect sense, everyone was training everyone else. Zecca's first big film came out in 1902, Alibaba and His Forty Thieves. While it was influenced by Méliès, it also had an interesting innovation of its own. Zecca, who had worked in the stage arts, didn't have a lot of trouble emulating Méliès's artistic style in devising the backgrounds, but he lacked Méliès's sense of depth in his work. This problem may have been due to a lack of visual spaciousness in his work or even a lack of understanding how to place the lighting. The ending of the film is quite interesting as Ali Baba goes to heaven, and it looks like a fantastic combination of stagecraft and carny displays, with spinning stars and flashing lights, and a young lady standing in front of one of those dazzling spinning effects. Are these the virgins that Ali Baba may have been promised when he got to heaven? Zekka's most important innovation in this film was title cards. At least these are the first title cards that still exist. It's pretty easy to watch comedy skits and not require an explanation, and even Miliez's films are not explained. At least, I don't think so. Some of these films do have titles, but they seem to have been added on at a later date, possibly in the 1920s or 30s, possibly added by a vintage film company or even by a YouTuber. That's what makes this bit a little difficult to untangle. 
I've seen titles on important films, especially Méliès's La Fère Dreyfus from 1899. This film was sold both as individual scenes and as a collection of scenes that told the whole story. Probably the titles I saw were inserted later in order to make the story a little clearer. But did Méliès do this kind of thing at the time he made his movies, as the scenes do tend to blur together? Still, Méliès did not add title cards to any of his other movies at this time, and it seems that no one else did either. If anything, Pathé, even more than Méliès, may have been attempting to brand his work at this early date. The company did go to greater lengths than anyone else to prevent duping or theft of the company's work. Some of these early films already show the Pathé rooster, and with Zecca having accomplished a major film right around the time of Méliès' A Trip to the Moon, the company may have been aware of the problems of rampant duping in America, as well as the loss of money that Méliès incurred. So, were the title cards an attempt to solve that problem? Who knows? They would quickly become the place where every film company would park their logos or company names. Like every other filmmaker of that time, Zeka's output was primarily films of one to two minutes, but every so often he released a film that could be considered a special of some kind, something that ran for at least five minutes, if not longer. In 1902, those specials tended to be elaborate fairy tales, much in the style of Méliès, while his shorter films were a combination of comedies and fantasies all in the style of Edison, the Brits, or Milliers. A few films did seem similar to what Alice Guy and Camant did, but it's hard to tell who influenced whom. By 1903, Pathé Frère had started hiring others to handle their cameras, and Zeka started training them. They include Lucien Nanger, Gaston Fell, Georges Gâteau, and Albert Capellani. Zeka's big project that year was the making of a new passion play, which he worked on with Lucien Nanger. This would be the film or series of films that people would most remember from this time by Pathé. There would be 27 of these films with crowd scenes in some of them. Those would be the episodes that Nanger would handle. By 1904, Pathé started to release a large body of films into the world. At the beginning of that year, the Edison Company was heavily promoting its great train robbery, and they would continue to do so through most of the year. By spring, the big movie news was the outbreak of the Russo-Japanese War, and all the war footage accompanying it. At the same time, companies like Edison, Biograph, and Lubin were releasing shorter films with many of them still being either actualities, news events, or simple comedies. Lubin also advertised that he had a hundred French films for sale. By the summer, the hot film subject seems to have been footage from the St. Louis World's Fair, and by September, Biograph had released Personal and Edison had released its copycat film about the Frenchman who was advertising for a wife in the personal ads of the New York Herald. At the same time, Pathé started to advertise its films. Up to that time, films from Pathé Frère had been exported to America through Biograph and could be found at exchanges such as at Klein's in Chicago and Powers in the New York Film Exchange. But in July, Pathé established an office in New York. Most undoubtedly, Pathé was attempting to prevent the duping issues that Méliès faced from American film companies, which would prove to be harder than they thought. But the move was also part of an attempt to distribute Pathé films globally. Among the handful of films released in September of 1904 was a Bible story, Joseph Sold by His Brothers, a film about a strike, obviously called The Strike, and a Western-themed film called Indians and Cowboys. 
All three of these films could be considered narratives at their most basic, and it suggested that something was going on between the time that Edison released The Great Train Robbery earlier the previous December and when Path A started releasing their films in America the following September. The story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers is or was a very well-known Bible story. I'm not so sure about that now, but in 1900, almost everyone knew the story. On its own, people might have considered it simply an Old Testament extension of the Passion Play films, but the other two films were also narratives, and in a much more contemporary way. In a sense, both The Strike and Indians and Cowboys were really just repeats of themes found in popular theatrical plays. But up to that moment, there had not yet been any attempt to recreate ideas found in plays, let alone filming a play itself. But the lines between plays, particularly plays that appeared in stock theater and the first film narratives, is very fine and more blurred than people may suspect. While the very first movie makers may have conjured up a few original ideas, some of the very first films that fall into what we would now consider narrative types of movies were definitely borrowed from other sources, including contemporary plays. At the time, everyone knew that Georges Méliès had borrowed the themes for his greatest films. After all, it wasn't the originality of his ideas that people loved about his work, but the way he visually translated them into special movies. Everyone knew the Cinderella story, and Méliès borrowed not only from the original story, but from plays, musicals, and operas that had all appeared over the previous century. Back in the episode about a trip to the moon, I mentioned that the movie borrowed not only from the book by Jules Byrne, but from the opera by Offenbach. In a few years, the film industry could no longer get away with borrowing from other sources without permission, but at this time they were still flying under the cultural radar, at least under the radar of America's literati. A few months before Edison made the great train robbery, Biograph had filmed two shorts, one titled The Pioneers and the other Kit Carson, up in the Adirondacks. Both were westerns but neither seemed to influence Edwin Porter's work. While I can't trace the pioneers at this time, it does look as if Kit Carson was also based on a play, although not a very successful one. It ran for a week at the American Theater in Manhattan. Written by American theater critic Franklin File, his play went almost immediately into the stock circuit. Whether File actually was contacted by Mutoscope Biograph concerning making his play into a movie isn't known, but as far as I can see, Mutoscope Biograph's movie was certainly more successful than the play. Interestingly, despite being made two months before The Great Train Robbery, Mutoscope didn't release either Kit Carson or The Pioneers until later in 1904, at about the same time that Path A's films started to appear. By that time, The Great Train Robbery had been a major success, and even Path A's Indians and Cowboys had been a success in Europe. What this all shows is a group awareness of the use of outside literary and entertainment materials for making movies, and most of these sources had used narrative to a much greater extent than the movies had done up to this time. A number of film historians are correct in pointing out that what these early movie makers were doing were simply learning how to use the camera tricks they had learned while making novelties, actualities, and comedies, and applying them to telling stories. What seems to have made this process a little easier was that they depended very much upon material whose stories they could use, rather than wrestling with telling a story while at the same time trying to figure out how to tell it with a camera. All they had to do was figure out how to translate what they already knew and were told into something movie-like. 
and as much of it had already been on stage, they could depend upon the collective memory of the play's stagecraft to decorate and block their sets. 1905 was a strange year for the cinema. It was the year that the Nickelodeon was introduced, and according to film legend, this idea spread pretty fast. But also in this year, film production decreased. I'll discuss this problem in the next podcast, but for now, it's enough to say that the film companies became much more interested in continuing to make their machines at a time when film production should have been growing. This was the market that Path A started to take advantage of. In some ways, it's easy to see that Path A achieved what it set out to do, but there are other times when it's not so sure. From our point of view, many of the films from this period no longer exist, or possibly they're just not online. These films lack the romance of the very first films. And while a certain number of them are still around, such as The Great Train Robbery, most of them are quite forgotten. Worse, those that exist have not been cleaned up and restored the way that the early Lumieres or Edisons have. It's a neglected era. For some of these films, I don't even know if there are photos. And in all of these films, the studios are already using professional actors, although we don't know who they are. Also, if you watch these films, they still retain that chaotic sense of motion that many early films have. But even if they are professional actors, it feels as if they are a freshman improv group struggling to discover what they want to say and how to physically express it. At the time, these frantic, wasted gestures probably didn't matter to people like Zeka or Porter or even their audiences. But once silent acting truly became professional, these early films do seem only semi-professional. To be fair, until Griffith showed up, no one seemed to care about correcting the style of acting, and all these people performed in these movies probably had little in the way of pantomime training. As for the camera work, not only is it static, which shouldn't be surprising, it seems that a desire to replicate the stage freezes the camera, except for an occasional pan to the left or the right. Very little editing was done. Scenes were filmed whole and simply attached to the next successful part of the story. Thanks to the influence of Zeka, the films I saw all had intertitles added to them, primarily as explanations between scenes. Of the six or seven film companies involved at this time, Edison seems to have released a limited number each month in early 1905, with a combination of actualities, comedies, and an occasional moralist crime film. He did start out with a release of Parsifal in January. That may have been the company's most important film of the year until the release of Train Wreckers in December. In 1906, the company's most important films were The Very Successful Dreams of a Rarebit Fiend and Probably the Life of a Cowboy and Kathleen Malvernine. At Christmas, the company released The Night Before Christmas, undoubtedly the first Christmas movie. The Edison Company set the tone for the rest of the American companies as none of them had yet gained the power to do something different. This pattern of comedies, occasional news clips, and periodic moralistic stories of either melodrama or crime established the standard that others based themselves upon. During this period, Lubin also became active. He also was the preeminent duper of other people's films. His The Counterfeiters was kind of a great train robbery copycat, of course without a train. He duped Pathé's passion play and had the nerve to sell it after Pathé set up shop in America. He also copied Pathé's comedy hit, The Moon Lover. Through the rest of 1905 and all of 1906, Lubin's most successful films were professionally filmed championship bouts. 
Selig, in response to the Times, was more interested in whatever available projection work he could grab rather than in selling films at the moment. For a good portion of the year, he continued to sell Tracked by Bloodhounds, his big hit of 1904. This was followed up by the holdup of the Leadville stage, which proved to be his big hit of 1905. In fact, he didn't seem to release much of anything else, or if he did, he never advertised it. Phytograph, Metoscope Biograph, and Melies all had shoddy release habits during the year. Phytograph was quite inactive until the fall of 1905, when Smith and Blackton started releasing two or three films a month. Mutoscope Biograph was much more deeply involved in exhibition work in 1905, but they also had an inconsistent pattern of making and releasing films. Melies had two notable films, The Palace of the Arabian Nights and An Adventurous Automobile, as well as a handful of lesser films. All of this makes Pathé at least look consistent. And to a large number of people, Pathé had already proved that they could provide better films than had the American companies. The films they featured in the middle part of the first decade of the 1900s show both a large variety of work, probably a greater variety than the American companies had provided collectively. But these films also have much more range in their acting than does anyone else. While there is still a fair amount of over-gesticulating and arm-waving, some of these films show more naturalistic acting, the kind of acting you'd see more of about several years later. Also, there is more of a French attitude, probably a result of the realism that had taken over French theater in the latter half of the 19th century. Many of the French comedies and dramas had rejected the moralism that had once prevailed due to the romanticism of the melodramatic theater. Bad boys don't get punished as they do in Edison films. Wayward lovers don't reunite. Bad things happen to people and those things don't get rectified. In Pathé's The Pastry Cook's jokes, the pastry cook is a young boy with an unrelenting savageness to his humor, and he never gets punished. Still, it's quite a funny film. The same sense of cruelty exists in A Henpecked Husband, but again, it's quite funny. As for actualities, Zeka recreated the Odessa riots in Russia in the movie Revolution in Odessa in the same way that Melies recreated scenes of the Spanish-American War. There are also actualities such as the Steeplechase film, as well as an occupational educational film about the Crusoe foundry in France. The movie The Gun License evolves into a funny chase film. So was Incendiary. The Christian Martyrs is a little gruesome, but it's also a staged lion tamer's act. The female spy leads to a lover being tied to a horse and dragged to her death. Tit for Tat shows ballet dancers dressed as butterflies who persecute a man who collects butterflies. They even pin him to a cushion so that he knows how it feels. The fact that Pathé was producing so many films shouldn't be surprising, as they even proclaimed in one of their ads that they had five studios. This was quite ambitious on their part, as there probably weren't that many film studios in America at that time, especially ones that were that sophisticated. Both Edison and Vitagraph were in the throes of building their first real studios, but they wouldn't be ready until the end of 1906. The fact was that the American film companies were not yet ready for the demands of the public when it came to making movies. It was a desire that was quickly outracing the abilities of Edison, Biograph, Phytograph, Lubin, and Selig. Soon, a whole new wave of film companies will start up, 
only to see Edison and his company desperately grasp to hold on to an industry that was slipping from their fingertips as it grew by leaps and bounds. I don't think Path A set out to destroy Edison, and when he reacted angrily in 1907, Path A bent to his wishes. But the French company was turning out films at a greater rate than were the American companies, and they were presenting a realistic form of film that an American market had not yet experienced, as their filmmakers continued to play with the tried and true. The era of silent movies as a mechanical novelty was long gone, and even the era of the movies as a charming distraction was slipping from their fingers. The ability of Path A to turn out a number of films each month, with some of them showing remarkable maturity for the time, and to do this on a continuing basis had turned the novelty into an industry, regardless of what the American film companies thought. In early 1907, Path A would turn out what would amount to one film a day. That meant that a theater or vaudeville house or amusement park exhibition house could play a new film every day, or two every two days. This is a remarkable amount of work. Eventually, the American film companies would catch up, and Pathé's work wouldn't look so unique. Still, comedies and melodramas would be a good part of the American cinematic diet. But until then, Edison's next struggles would not be with the men who made machines, but with the men who will make movies. Goodbye to the movies as a novelty. Welcome to the beginning of the movies as a major entertainment industry. Next time, we'll look at what's causing the movies to grow so fast in between the appearance of the Nickelodeons and the beginning of the movie palaces. I'll give you a hint. Having fun had a lot to do with it. Thank you for listening, and I hope you stick around and listen next time.